Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, with a message entitled, Watch Out for Those Later Years. So let's turn in our Bibles to Genesis 26, 34 to 27, verse 10, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. For a great many years now, I have rehearsed a little mantra. I have said that the great temptation of younger men is sex, and the great temptation of older men is power. You know, but as I think about those words, I recognize how incomplete they are. You know, women have their own unique temptations as they progress through the various stages of their lives. And furthermore, to simply confine the stages of life to two temptations, that is, you know, first lust and then the desire to exercise and influence power over others, well, I think it is true, but it's not true enough. And what I mean is that the temptation of older men and women is to rely on earlier, younger zeal for the Lord, but in old age, to allow that zeal to fade and for more base desires of self-gratification and entitlement to take over. And I've seen it happen to many, both men and women, once filled with zeal. Now the fire of that zeal is like the burnt logs in a fireplace, fire and fuel replaced by ashes and a cold, barren hearth. You know, if you're older, I hope I'm not describing you. And if you're younger, I hope that what I'm about to describe will never describe you. But I'm speaking about Isaac, the son of Abraham. He is the child of promise, the son given to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. He is also the man who once refused to go to Egypt in a time of national famine simply because the Lord told him to stay. His earlier courage and zeal now seem gone. Indeed, when we encounter Isaac from Genesis 27 and beyond, we hardly recognize him. He seems like a very different man. Indeed, the man he has become almost entirely explains why the family that he leads becomes the dysfunctional family that it becomes. So let's begin by reading our text. It's Genesis 26, verse 34 to chapter 27, verse 10. When Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me, so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau, bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies." Now, before we get too far into this passage, I think it necessary to deal with something I've not spent nearly enough time explaining. It's the matter of the blessing of Abraham. 
You know, in my last passage, I did not deal with Genesis 26, 23 to 25. That passage said, From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Now we have in our text multiple examples of Isaac being the recipient of Abraham's blessing. Notice the words, fear not, for I am with you. They sound almost identical to what God promised Abraham way back in Genesis 15 verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, fear not, Abram, I am your shield, your reward will be very great. That is, a part of the Abrahamic covenant is the promise that all of the omnipotence of God, that is, the power of God that can do everything that God wants, well, that power is being promised to Abraham's benefit. God will use the might of God for Abraham's good. And it's the same thing that is promised to Isaac when he faces famine. But then we notice that Isaac is also promised the blessing of God and the promise that he will multiply Isaac's offspring. That is, God had promised that Abraham would become a great nation and that Abraham and the nation that came from him would be the conduit of God's salvation to a world that was lost in sin. Abraham's blessing was the hope of the human race, and now this wonderful privilege has fallen on Isaac. It's important to see the main theme all through Genesis. Indeed, the same theme is there through the entire Bible. Humanity, ruined by sin, is being promised the gift of salvation. And that salvation will flow from Abraham's loins, that is, from Abraham's descendants. This is being promised now to Isaac, who is the son of promise. So we have to assume then that Isaac is cognizant that he is given the privilege and the obligation to pass that gift on to the next generation, to one of his sons. And we have to assume that Isaac has already heard the word that came to his wife, Rebekah, as is recorded in Genesis 25, verse 23, that the older, that is Esau, would serve the younger, Jacob. So Isaac knows as the leader of his house what it is that God desires. But Isaac, now in his old age, lacks both the desire to obey God and the discernment to see a huge problem that's developing in his family. In the last several verses of chapter 26, we are told that Esau is 40 years old and he's taken two wives and both of them are Hittite women. Now, why is that a problem? Well, in order to answer that, it is important to acknowledge several things. First, please note that polygamy, that is one man marrying more than one wife, that was a common practice. And up to this point in time, we don't yet have a biblical command prohibiting this. But we do know that Abraham only had one wife and so did Isaac. It may have been a common practice in the nations around them, but polygamy was not a practice in Esau's family. But that's not the principal problem here. In order to understand this, we need to do a review through Genesis. We go back to Genesis chapter 24, verse 3, and we might remember that Abraham had given a command to his servant to go and find a wife for his son Isaac. And verses 2 and 3 records Abraham saying to his servants, Put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But why? 
Well, in order to answer that, we need to go back further in Genesis, back to chapter 15. In verses 15 and 16, God tells Abraham, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they, that is your descendants, shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And then describing who the Amorites are, verse 20 says, and this description includes, yep, the Hittites. And that means, at the very least, that God had told Abraham that the Hittites were a very wicked culture. But because of his mercy, he would not punish them yet until their wickedness reached such a point in time that judgment must come. And that's why none of the people walking in the blessing of Abraham was permitted to intermarry with them. To do so would be to despise the hope of salvation for the world. Does Esau know that? Well, yeah, he did. We know he did because the text says that these marriages made bitter the life of Isaac and Rebekah. This is everything they had taught their children not to do. But as we're going to see, Esau had no appreciation for the Abrahamic covenant. It was a matter of no concern for him. And all that to say, this turn of events should have signaled the truth of the word of God, that it was never going to be Esau that was the child of promise. How could he inherit a blessing he who saw no value in it. And it's exactly this that makes it so painful to read Genesis 27, verse 4. Here we have Isaac directing his son Esau, saying, Prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, and my soul may bless you before I die. And so it soon becomes plain that the blessing must be the Abrahamic blessing. And what's more, I find it astonishing that Isaac is going to offer this blessing to Esau just between the two of them, in his tent. He thinks it's the last act of his life. Given how Isaac received the blessing and that it was done publicly as a grand act of faith, now Isaac plans to offer that same blessing to the next generation without anyone watching. See, in one sense, that's not surprising. I mean, after all, Isaac knows full well that Rebekah would have put up quite a fuss. I mean, she knows exactly who is to receive the blessing. And here's the point. The mark of a godly leader is not that they choose their own course, but they're known for their meticulous obedience to the God who directs their ways. Isaac was not that man anymore. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, sharing the truth of the Bible has never been more important. And the efforts of Back to the Bible Canada, well, they earnestly strive to effectively meet that need every day. Through the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld and the many other ministry programs and resources made available nationally and globally, this ministry exists for one purpose, sharing the uncompromising good news of Jesus Christ. You know, this is our fiscal year end, a time when we make a special financial appeal to all those who support and listen to the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Could I ask you to consider offering a special gift this month, perhaps a first-time gift, to support our fiscal year-end goal of $325,000? Every dollar raised sustains and provides new opportunity to share the light of Christ in a dark world. Thanks in advance for your commitment to faithfully supporting Bible teaching, and call us with your gift today at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
Genesis 27 begins by telling us that Isaac was old, since Genesis 25 verse 26 tells us that when the twins, that is Esau and Jacob were born, Isaac was 60 years old, and that now the twins are 40, well, we know Isaac is 100 years old. And our text also tells us that at his age, he's virtually blind, and we assume he's in poor health. And we also know that he tells Esau he must give him the blessing now before he dies. So we have to assume that Isaac is anticipating that his death is very near. And yet, as we continue to follow the story through, we find out that he still lives another 80 years. And it is this fact and the fact that he seems intent on giving the Abrahamic blessing to the wrong son that has made more than one Bible teacher comment that, in a way, Isaac's blindness is really symbolic of a greater blindness. See, Isaac assumes that he's going to die before he even gets the chance to give away the Abrahamic blessing. And he also assumes against everything that he already knows that he's going to bless whatever son he chooses. He's he's blind in every way. And instead of trusting in God, he panics. He knows he can't convince Rebekah. And he knows that Esau really has abandoned the Abrahamic faith. And yet he is determined to bless him even if it means he must be clandestine in the way he does it. But there's another cue that tells us how blind the old man has become. Look carefully again at verse 4. He tells Esau to go out and hunt game and watch verse 4 again and prepare for me delicious food such as I love. He also assumes that eating the food that he loves is going to inspire his soul to bless the wrong boy. You see, in this fashion, it seems like Isaac has become more like Esau than he knows. You'll remember that Esau sold Isaac his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew, and Isaac, his father, is about to betray his God for food as well. What's also interesting in this story is that Isaac must believe that he can separate out the rights of the firstborn and the blessing of Abraham. And to be clear about this point, let's just assume for a moment that this were possible. The rights of the firstborn were property rights. We've already been told that Isaac has become a very rich man, and we have to assume that Jacob has laid hold on the majority. I assume two-thirds of all his father owned will not go to Esau, but to Jacob. But Isaac must believe that this is not as important as the spiritual component of the blessing of Abraham. If God uses all the fullness of his power to bless Esau, the old man must believe that in the long term, Esau will become more economically powerful than Jacob. See, Isaac believes that in this way, he's going to force God's hand. Jacob will be banished from the promise of inheriting Canaan. He will have to move to a lesser, fertile part of the desert, and eventually Esau will be greater. Now, of course, Isaac really is spiritually blind. I mean, who can resist the purposes of God and succeed? Let's make that matter personal, shall we? Let's say that you, my dear listener, or let's say that I, as a pastor and a Bible teacher, at some point in time, I decide that not only will I disobey God, but I'm going to hoodwink God out of his eternal plans. You know, am I so blind that I should think that such a plot would succeed? If we really thought about it, we would, unless we're completely blind to whom we're dealing with. We have to assume that we will bring ourselves harm if we don't submit to God's purposes. As we've noticed, Isaac's blindness is profound. Now comes that moment in which this family becomes seriously dysfunctional. 
Verse 5 tells us that Rebekah is on the outside of the tent as Isaac is speaking with Esau. And in a flash, she hatches her plot. In this moment, we see how deeply divided Isaac and Rebekah have become. You know, at one point in time, and that is when they first met and were married, you know, Genesis 24 verse 67 says, Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. She became his wife, and it says he loved her. See, there was a time in Isaac's life when he was raw in emotion with the death of his mother being very recent, but Rebekah, his wife, replaces his affections. Now, those of you who, you know, have some kind of a Freudian analysis of this, let me help you. Rebecca becomes to Isaac all that his mother could never be. Rebecca is his life's partner. She is the one chosen by God to share love and children and a common vision of living under the blessing of God. And that would have been and was their early life. But then life tended to press in on them. And surely the rivalry between Esau and Jacob didn't make the situation any better. And the personality of the boys began to reveal itself. It was clear that the parents were divided in their estimation of their children. You know, children can do that. They can divide parents. And so by the time we come to the moment when Rebekah hatches the plot to get Jacob's blessing, the division between Isaac and Rebekah is now pronounced. They aren't talking. They're at odds. And so without even thinking about talking to her husband, for those days had passed so many years earlier, she calls her son Jacob. Look again at verse 6. Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. And then go forward to verse 8. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. So to be clear, Rebekah does have a choice. She might have confronted her husband with everyone in the room. But those days are long gone. The divide between that husband and wife is now pronounced. So we we have to assume that the two, Isaac and Rebekah, have had this conversation before, and now there's nothing to do but for Rebekah to plot. But Jacob is not innocent in this matter. As As we look into this matter in later episodes, we're going to see that his major concern is not that his mother is plotting against his father. His major concern is that he will be found out. Instead of receiving a blessing, he's going to incur the curse of his father. And what's a further part of this story is also must not be missed is the sure conviction that this giving of the Abrahamic blessing can only be done once, and once it's been given, it can't be revoked. And so, given the scene that's being played out, both Rebekah and her son are determined to deceive both Isaac and Esau. No matter what it takes, just get the blessing. A great many Bible students have mused about this scenario. It seems that the entire plan of God is at stake here. If Esau receives the blessing, then the Abrahamic covenant that the Savior of the world should come seems in jeopardy. Everything in the entire plan of redemption seems to hang on this one thing. Can Rebekah and Jacob conceive a plot so as to deceive Isaac so that God's plan of redemption might be fulfilled? But how can that be true? Remember, at the outset, while the two boys were still in their mother's womb, God had already announced that the older would serve the younger and that the blessing would come to Jacob and not to Esau. And with that in mind, listen to Psalm 33, verses 8 to 11. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord, that all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, 
He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. See, that means to me that the plans of the Lord did not depend on how well Jacob could deceive his father. Faith means trusting in God, acting on that trust, regardless of the circumstances. So it seems to me that it was not just Isaac who had allowed his faith to slide in his older years. So had Rebecca. Their animosity towards each other, their profound disagreement regarding their two boys, indeed their arguments regarding the word of the Lord had led them to discount the greatness of their God. What then do we learn? Is it not this? that we drift from the Lord not only when we allow our passion to cool, but when we fail to focus on the commands and the promises of our God. For Isaac, it was his deep disappointment in God that God had chosen Jacob over Esau. And for Rebekah, it was her lack of confidence that God was able to keep his promises to her. And this, in their later years, both Isaac and Rebekah, a deeply divided couple, a couple who lost their confidence in the wisdom and the power of God, allowed their family to slip into chaos. See, that's a lesson for all of us. Fail to take God into account. Not only does it hurt you, but it leads to chaos all around you. Would you, my dear listener, be prepared to pray something like this? Oh, Lord, may I never live long enough to fail to obey you and to fail to trust you. For my good, and for the good of my family, O Lord. Keep my heart steadfast and focused on you. May I always be found submissive to your will and believing in your promises, amen. John, I have a question for you. Do we have to be cautious about the later years as Christians, what the later years will bring in or out of us? You know, Ben, it seems to me that they go one way or the other. I don't know that it just carries on the way it's been. I think in our later years, we either become very cool towards the Lord. I mean, some people say, you know, this time is for me. I've served the Lord all my life, and so this is just for me. And there are other people that seem to renew their love for the Lord. But I think in the later years, we have to navigate the issues that we face at that point in time. And if we don't navigate them in faith, we will cool in our faith. Um, and I think we just become indifferent. And uh, I, you, know, you and I have seen people like that. And we need to pray, Lord, may I not outlive my love for you. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Amazing Promises to Dysfunctional People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada where we teach the Bible. Sarah wrote, Dr. Neufeld brings scripture to life with depth, practicality, challenge, and hope. The world has changed. Technology has made everything closer. Ministries have changed, and yet Back to the Bible has remained constant in its values and teaching and has embraced technology all while making sure the gospel is not diluted. You do a marvelous work, and I look forward to hearing you every day. You know, messages like this help us feel like we're hitting the mark. And with God's blessing, people of every age and background are being impacted through faithful Bible teaching. Our special thanks to all those who listen and support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada. Your encouragement and commitment means so much. 
You can join us in this effort with your financial support by calling us at 1-800-663-2425 or by visiting backtothebible.ca.